0: Welcome back to the Para Sports Nutrition podcast. My name is Liz Broad and I'm an accredited sports dietitian. Today it's my great pleasure to introduce a good friend of mine, Associate Professor Ben Desbro. Ben is a sports dietitian and he is a program director of the Bachelor of Nutrition and Dietetics at Griffith University. He's also a co-author of the book Caffeine and Sports Performance. Welcome to the program, Ben.
1: Oh, thanks for having me on, Liz. It's a great pleasure to join you.
0: Ben loves to have fingers in lots of pies and push boundaries in his research. He also is pretty good at pushing buttons sometimes. Ben, can you tell us a little bit about yourself and your research interests?
1: Sure. Um, Like yourself, I'm a sports dietitian. Um, I started off undertaking an exercise science degree at university And then soon became interested in what fueled exercise as much as the prescription of exercise Um, and then from there i undertook some um, training to become a dietitian i'm from brisbane and queensland so there was only one training course at the time and was fortunate enough to get into that training course Um, and then after i graduated i actually worked as a clinical dietitian for about 10 years at a hospital in brisbane and worked in oncology, um, in stem cell transplantation and in hemodialysis and then I, I also ran a private practice which has sports focus and then that really allowed me to gain some experience which I then used and was fortunate enough to have a fellowship at the Institute of Sport. I was following in some of these great people's footsteps <laughs> people like Liz Broad who had a fellowship a few years before me and so um, that really was a I guess a career-defining experience for me because it really gave me exposure to not just um, nutrition research but sports nutrition research and then from there I went on and did a PhD in sports nutrition and that was at Griffith University on the Gold Coast where I work so I was very fortunate to have a job as an academic where I was teaching clinical nutrition because I'd worked in that area but I was doing research in sport and exercise nutrition and my PhD was actually looking at cola beverages and endurance exercise and so cola beverages being made of fluid, carbohydrates, caffeine, all of the things that um, was, it was, it was it was like a little um, perfect package. And so we had a look at each of those components independently as part of my PhD. And I've, I've been working now at Griffiths for about um, 20 years. But the reason I was explaining that I worked in a hospital previously is that I used to think that i had sort of two careers my clinical nutrition career and my sports nutrition career and i don't i don't see my career like that anymore i see my career as someone who's interested in maintaining function independence and quality of life in humans through nutrition and sometimes that is at the spectrum of getting people to recover from an operation or getting them to stay out of hospital and, and on other occasions it's about getting you know the best physical performance out of an athlete but some of the key drivers are the same you know you, you've got to work with the skills attitudes and knowledge of the individual you've then got to apply your dietetic competencies and skills and knowledge to best help that individual but it's also about you know capability and opportunity and motivation of the individual that you're working with and so so i guess i employ all of those things now irrespective of what context it's in
0: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, everything that we learn across our career, it comes together, doesn't it, in terms of how we then approach the problem-solving exercise of working with individual athletes. Ben, when you started doing research on caffeine, most of your colleagues thought this was just so that you could go and check out all the coffee shops on the Gold Coast. What were you doing? Um,
1: Well, the first caffeine studies that I got exposed to were in Canberra, um, and it was looking at whether... You needed to take caffeine an hour before exercise, or whether you could give um, caffeine during exercise and get the same effect. And it was right at a time when when Wada, Wada, the World Anti-Doping Agency, had previously considered caffeine to be a prohibited substance, and they had very recently um, removed it. Um, but it was still sort of in this grey zone between should an athlete take it or not? You know, was it now sanctioned doping? And so there was a lot of sort of political uncertainty as to whether athletes should take caffeine or not or whether that was an ethical thing to do, even though WADA had said, look, you can take it and you won't um, expose yourself to a, a you know, a, a doping violation. Um, and so agencies such as the Institute of Sport and some of the sports academies in Australia became very nervous about um, conducting research on caffeine. Um, there had been quite a lot of research done on caffeine in the 19 19- 70s, 1980s, but then not a lot had happened uh, across that sort of intervening period um, there was little pockets of research um, but because it was becoming um, able to be used in competition again there was I guess renewed enthusiasm for um, how caffeine could influence performance and I was in a fortunate situation that at a university you can pretty much do what you like provided you've got human research ethics. Um, the, poli- the political um, pressures are not there and so I was able to embark on some caffeine research, a whole range of caffeine research studies um, on the basis of that opportunity. And the first one, which you alluded to, was we found some spare money in some research account that needed to be spent before Christmas. And we thought, well, what can we do with this little pocket of money that we had? And, and when I was undertaking my PhD, we were trying to work out, well, where do people get caffeine from? What are the sources of caffeine? And obviously, cola beverages was the focus of my PhD but we knew that um, coffee, and certainly the coffee culture in Australia, was really starting to explode. So the first thing we did was go and have a look to see how much caffeine you get from coffee when you go to a a commercial coffee shop. And so we went around to different coffee shops on the Gold Coast, which is close to where I work, and we we took about 100 coffee samples. Now, at the time, I didn't drink coffee um, and and wasn't really a, a fan of coffee, but as a consequence of this study, I became addicted to the smell. Uh, it was really the smell that, that caught my attention. And so it wasn't It wasn't that we were drinking the coffee, it was just uh, in this study we went around and just collected espressos um, from from different coffee shops, um, but we, which we would decant into our vials and then stick in the freezer and then take them back to um, the university for caffeine analysis. But of course, every time you had to decant one of these vials, you, you caught this smell and every time you opened the Esky, you cop the smell again. And I was doing this for a couple of weeks, and uh, it was absolutely fantastic. Um, and so from from there, my own personal coffee habit sort of kicked off, and I've never really looked back.
0: <laughs> and hence your addiction started. And so, apart from the baristas being mortified about seeing their hard work going into a vial, what did you find?
1: Well, we focused on espresso coffees and the reason we focused on um, just getting an espresso um, coffee is because that forms the basic unit from which most of the other coffees, if you're having a latte or you're having a cappuccino, or whatever, whatever, whatever other variety you're having, you start with a basic espresso shot. So we figured if we'd established the caffeine content in, a, in, a, in an espresso shot, that would give us a foundation of how much variability there was in caffeine from obviously a very popular source of, of caffeine. Um, and what we found um, sort of really blew us away. The lowest um, uh, caffeine content that we found in one of our espresso shots was about 25 milligrams and the highest um, caffeine that we found was about 214. So we had about a nine-fold variance in the amount of caffeine if you went and just asked for one espresso shot. Now we didn't specify whether it was a single shot or a double shot we just asked them for an espresso to take away if they asked us, would, would we want a single or a double? We said single, but if they, if they didn't ask, we just took what they, they gave us. So there's some variability in the size of the espressos, but the reality was there's a huge variation that occurs naturally in coffee, um, which is a result of both the species of the coffee beans, how it's roasted, um, and then how it's, it's actually um, delivered to you by the barista in, in your local coffee shop.
0: Okay, so that's pretty surprising because if you look at you know, charts of caffeine content of foods and fluids, they often say that the average caffeine content of a cup of coffee is, what, 120 milligrams or something like that. And it's obviously not the case. No,
1: so, I mean, in the espresso um, data that we had, I think the, the typical espresso shot contained around about 110 milligrams. Um, but the standard deviation, so, you know, what you what you might expect the caffeine variance to be, was about 40-odd milligrams from that, plus or minus. So it's not at all surprising if you get something that's, you know, in the 50s. And equally, it's not at all surprising if you get something that's well over 150 milligrams. And so um, what, what's, what's the concern with that? Um, if you're only having one coffee a day, um, probably nothing. If, if you're having um, or, or using coffee as the vehicle to drive a performance enhancement in an athlete so an ergogenic dose of caffeine and um, we would normally prescribe a dose that might be a milligram relative to their kilo body weight um, and, and in this case you really aren't able to accurately determine how much caffeine you're giving an individual if you're using coffee as the form of that caffeine particularly commercial coffee.
0: Okay so Ben a lot of athletes like the taste of coffee and and you know they'll take it with them wherever they go if they're travelling. But apart from the taste and perhaps the alertness that it gives you, what effect does coffee or sorry, what effect does caffeine have on performance?
1: Well, there's there's a few different things that caffeine does in the body that may influence performance, um, but probably the most well recognised an established um, mechanism has to do with adenosine receptor antagonism. So adenosine receptors are, uh, are found right throughout the body. They're found in your brain um, and, and right through um, your entire sort of uh, most tissues um, in the body. Um, and, and normally as these receptors get uh, saturated with adenosine, it's basically um, a way of um, allowing the body to become or recognising a uh, a, a need for sort of calmness and um, reduced stimulation if you like and what caffeine does is basically block this process from occurring so it heightens arousal it, 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 it keeps um, things like heart rate and blood pressure um, elevated and it caffeine itself outside of the adenosine receptor um, effects also has effects on hormone regulation um, it probably has some direct effects at the muscle itself and some work that's been done on spinal injured individuals has helped us understand some of uh, these mechanisms because they have altered responses to caffeine in terms of hormonal regulation. So uh, it, it is well established as being probably the most effective ergogenics, so performance enhancing aid that you can legally take, uh, that we have evidence that it has effects across a, a fairly wide range of domains that will influence many sports so high intensity sport, concentration, arousal from um, sleep deprivation, um, endurance sports and, and and so it really does cross um, quite a wide spectrum of domains that are likely to influence exercise performance.
0: And so how much caffeine would be needed to get these sorts of effects?
1: Yeah so obviously these dose recommendations have been largely derived from able-bodied athletes and I know the focus of of your podcast is on parasports and parasports nutrition typically we would normally prescribe a dose between three and six milligrams per kilo body weight as a ergogenic dose um, so for a 70 kilo individual it's around sort of 200 milligrams to, to 300 350 milligrams it's certainly a case with caffeine that more is is sometimes less that is as you go to higher doses of caffeine so doses beyond six milligrams per kilo body weight you're likely to experience some effects of caffeine tachycardia anxiety elevated blood pressure which may harm or hinder performance Um, so it's definitely a supplement where having less is sometimes more there are some studies that have been done on individuals with spinal cord injuries some of those suggest that tetraplegics may have a need to lower that dose, that they may actually get a higher concentration, uh, potentially, of caffeine from, from a dose. However, when you look at the individual level of caffeine, and this is whether it's in para-athletes or able body individuals, there's a huge amount of individual variance as to how somebody responds to a dose of caffeine. We see it in our lab all the time. Uh, Some people are just slower at absorbing it and getting to a peak of caffeine than others and the the best study that's been done on para athletes where they've got some uh, Some some different levels of lesion and looked at pharmacokinetics Have also very very politely included the individual data in some of those studies and they also show that there's a huge variability within, within, within the individual And so this, to me, just just reflects exactly what we see in the able-bodied population, that that it's very, very difficult um, to pinpoint a pharmacokinetic profile, which you can then universally apply to all athletes. So the advice would really be to trial caffeine and caffeine responses at the individual level.
0: So what about the timing of when you take the caffeine? I know a lot of athletes who tend to think that having some caffeine you know within fifteen minutes before uh, an an event, even if that events events less than five minutes long is effective, does the impact of caffeine seem to be best at its peak level in your blood, or is there um is that something that we think is important to know in terms of measuring athletes response to caffeine, or do we think there's a sweet spot somewhere where that level of caffeine in the blood is going to have the biggest effect on their performance?
1: Uh, I don't think there's a the sweet spot. There's really only uh, very little literature on this, but the literature that has been done suggests that getting or timing it with the peak is not that important. I think caffeine does tend to hang around in your system for a long time. The half-life, which means that the, the time it takes for half the dose to be eliminated, for most people is probably six to seven hours. So it's, it's in your system for a long time. Yeah, so I, I think for some people it's less, for some people it's sort of four and a half, five hours. But I mean, that still provides you with a fairly long window of uh, opportunity to get the benefits from caffeine. And it's really only if you're doing sort of Ironman type performance or you half Ironman to Ironman, that sort of duration uh, in terms of triathlon, that you'd be seeing doses where you're gonna see uh, a need to you know potentially top up caffeine because it starts to, to taper off after, after a dose. But for most individuals who are competing in an event that lasts sort of 90 minutes or two hours, um, I don't think there's a sweet spot. It comes back to the practicality of the individual. You know, how nervous they get beforehand, whether they get a lot of symptoms from taking caffeine and, and whether those symptoms are something that the individual wants to avoid or they can easily manage.
0: So what do you think the best timing of taking the caffeine is?
1: Um, traditionally, most studies used an hour. So if you were doing, looking at the, the research, they'd usually give participants... Um, a a tablet or whatever the caffeine source was going to be an hour before Um, but we in some of our studies we've seen some individuals actually not absorb anything in an hour so we'd like to see some caffeine in the circulation so we've often taken it out to 90 minutes 15 minutes you're not going to see any caffeine in the circulation Uh, within 15 minutes in almost all of your individuals it'll start to appear sort of 25 30 minutes for some and then the peak will usually be you know between sort of one to two and a half hours after after consumption but as i said the peak's probably not important it's just that you've got some caffeine circulating
0: okay so we've been talking about the fact that the caffeine content of coffee for example can be quite variable depending Correct. on where you get your coffee from and how it's made um, do you think it's important to look at the source of caffeine, in terms of what the best source of caffeine is for athletes to use in order to optimise their performance.
1: And so you can you can absorb caffeine uh, pretty much um, any way you can get exposed to it. So you can you can absorb caffeine through your respiratory epithelium. You can um, so through breathing. Um, you can absorb caffeine transdermally through your skin, and equally you can absorb caffeine in the buccal cavity of the mouth. But the, the difference between absorbing caffeine in your mouth as opposed to absorbing it from your intestine um, is, is, is relatively small. It's, it, you know, in terms of a profile, for, for most individuals, it's probably a difference of about um, 10 to 15 minutes in the profile. So you get a sort of similar profile. It's just that if you take it through the mouth, it, it, it appears a little bit faster. Now, um, that, there may be some implications there for para-athletes because the studies that have looked at caffeine profiling suggest that there might be delays in gastric release of caffeine for some individuals, particularly um, tetraplegics. Uh, So it it may be that the buccal cavity or the the oral cavity provides a, a route where you sort of bypass some of those delays that may have occurred because of the spinal cord disruption.
0: Yeah, so we know with people who have a spinal cord injury, particularly at the higher level of spinal cord injury, their um, gastric emptying and digestion and absorption is a little slower than um, someone without a spinal cord injury. And so I guess uh, that makes sense that if you orally ingest uh, caffeine, that there may be a difference compared to, say, someone who's an able-bodied individual. So, do you think then that the something like a, a caffeinated gum may um, be a better way to deliver that caffeine uh, to someone who has a higher level spinal cord injury?
1: Yeah, but the only studies that have been done on para athletes and caffeine and, and the level of lesion have have used orally ingested caffeine that goes into the stomach, and and and, and they and they haven't been compared to a a chewing gum type source of caffeine.
0: Huh. So maybe that's a good study for you to do next?
1: Well I knew I came on to this podcast for, for some study ideas and, and we just, we've just we got our first one. There should be a, a bell, shouldn't there? Every time you get a study idea, the bell rings.
0: <laughs> yeah, maybe I'll need to get one. So can you tell me why some people consume to drink coffee late at night and not have any problems getting to sleep, whereas other people like myself can't really have it after about two o'clock in the afternoon without having a major disruption to my sleep.
1: So there's lots of potential ways in which the the individual's response to caffeine can vary because both the metabolism or the pharmacokinetics can be influenced by genetics and and particularly um, some enzymes in your liver that, that break caffeine down and equally there's genetic variances to Um, how somebody's adenosine receptors um, are distributed in the body and and the subtypes of adenosine receptors. So um, it is possible that we get some people exposed to the same dose of caffeine but the pharmacokinetics are very different and then how the body responds to that um, are very different and some of those can be um, genetic and and some of it's also to do with habituation Um, and and so um, it's it's a complex web.
0: And so do you think that some of that uh, genetics also influences how people, res- whether people respond to caffeine from a performance perspective. Do you find that there's some people that don't respond to caffeine or does everyone respond in some way?
1: Um, look, m- most people respond in, in some way. Um, there have been a number of studies that have looked at um, trying to classify people as sort of fast responders or, or slow responders in that sense based on um, genetic variances, um, these, these tend to be responses that relate to how quickly caffeine is metabolised, not variances necessarily on, on differences in adenosine receptor sensitivity. Mm-hmm. We, we have um, effectively, from an enzyme perspective in the liver, which is where caffeine gets broken down, what we might describe as sort of a, a fast, a moderate and a slow group. That's typically the way individuals are, uh, are broken up. Um, and, and the slow metabolizers group, who you might anticipate have a more pronounced response to caffeine, so in other words it hangs in their system for a much longer period of time, that, that genetic variance tends to be less common. So unfortunately the studies that have, have tried to identify whether there's a genetic um, influence here, which have looked at the genetics of how quickly caffeine gets broken down, they often have very small participant numbers in the slow group. Yep. And so it, it's often heavily biased towards the moderate and the fast metabolizers. But that they, that but most people get some response. it might be that you get a, a slightly different response, but our evidence in that area is sort of reasonably reasonably
0: weak. And the indications are from the research that you've done that you don't need to abstain from consuming caffeine in order for it to, you know, for any particular time, so you don't need to stop having coffee for two weeks in order to get that effect on performance. is that correct?
1: yeah look it remains a pretty controversial area Um, and there's been a number of studies that have looked at um, caffeine um, habituation. The worst studies, if we start with the worst studies in this area, um, I think are the ones where they ask um, participants what their usual caffeine intake is and then they just um, group them as a high consumer versus a low consumer based on on a questionnaire. Um, and, and then they stratify the results of a placebo or caffeine trial on whether they're a high habituated consumer or a low habituated consumer. Now there's there's major issues with that. Um, one, as I alluded to, caffeine variance occurs quite markedly from what you get exposed to. So if you ask somebody whether they mm-hmm. have you know three coffees a day. We take our low and high examples previously, we're talking about an individual who might get exposed to less than a hundred milligrams per day but equally they could be exposed to five to six hundred milligrams of caffeine per day. So just by asking people
0: mm-hmm.
1: what they usually do is a fairly poor way of understanding how habituated they are to caffeine. Yep. And we know that um, even if you go to the same coffee shop and you ask for the same coffee every day, there's there's day-to-day variance in that. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there have been some studies done in that space we've done some studies where we've, we've taken individuals and asked them not to consume caffeine which for many people is an absolute torture test yeah um,
0: <laughs> especially the first few days
1: and so what you what you need to do when you do a study like that is have some compliance checks to make sure people aren't just telling you what they think and so we will normally take some blood off an individual some days out before a trial um, to determine whether they've got any caffeine in their circulation or not, and so as I alluded to before, caffeine also breaks down to paraxanthine, and that paraxanthine has quite a long half-life. So we'll normally look for both caffeine and paraxanthine. So you may have had a sneaky one in the morning, knowing that you're going to have a blood test done in the afternoon. Well, we'll be able to tell that you've had some caffeine because there'll be some paraxanthine there, even if your caffeine value is zero.
0: Uh-huh.
1: So we 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 don't fall for the first trick, um, you know, in the book. Maybe with uh-huh. fall but um, <laughs> so so in the studies that that we've done where we've given caffeine in in tablet forms in the days leading up to an event and we've typically looked at sort of a four four day caffeine abstinence where where the person abstains from caffeine but we give them a tablet and sometimes those tablets contain caffeine and sometimes they don't so we regulate their habituation and then we give them again another tablet immediately before exercise so we've got a like a a chronic caffeine exposure and then an acute caffeine exposure. In those studies, we don't see that withdrawing someone for four days before caffeine produces an enhanced influence on performance in comparison to when they are exposed to caffeine in the four days leading up. In other words, the acute dose has an effect irrespective of whether the person's been withdrawn or not. Okay. Now, there's a couple of other things that I'd like to say about caffeine withdrawal. Um, number one it's bloody horrible Um, (laughs) if if you're habituated to caffeine even if you're only having one coffee a day Mm -hmm. and you've been doing that for some time it takes um, several weeks to um, dehabituate to that Um, and and that process can be very um, uncomfortable for an individual you'll often get a lot of disrupted sleep Um, headaches and just feel, um, a general feeling of malaise is probably what I would describe it.
0: Yeah. Well, and if that leads up to competition, that's not a great experience for the athlete to be going through at that point in time.
1: And and also during that, those, um, you know, four or five days before an event, like you, you're doing your final preparation, um, in terms of physical performance. Um, you want, you want those, you want to be going in confidence. You know, you want those sessions to be done well and, and to feel positive about that experience and, and confidence is a wonderful thing. And so our research would suggest you don't have to abstain from caffeine in order to get the benefit. Mm-hmm. The second point that I'd like to make is that when we ask participants in our study to abstain from caffeine before a trial, and we do still ask them to do that, it's more to just control the, the level that we're going to see increase in caffeine in their circulation we would normally use 12 hours in our lab now so we'll often run a trial in the morning so that just means obviously the night before Um, but most people will consume most of their caffeine in the morning because of the consequences that they've sort of learnt behavior around sleep and its influence on disrupting sleep so that's not normally a a major inconvenience for people Mm. but what we've started to see is Um, In in many of our participants now, we're still seeing residual caffeine 12 hours (laughs) or more in their circulation when they come into the lab. And and I think this relates to the fact that when you've got a a substance which has a half-life of, say, five to seven hours, that means only half of the compound is gone in that time. So beyond that, there's still some caffeine in the system. Now, if you get exposed to three... Or more caffeine doses in a day you, you probably haven't gotten rid of the previous caffeine before the next bit of caffeine comes in mm. so you so you're in this constant cycle where your baseline is actually caffeinated you don't get to a point where you've got no caffeine in your system and so what we've seen in our lab is that it's not necessarily just the dose of the caffeine or what somebody might you know fill out a questionnaire and say okay well you, you might be having 200 milligrams in a day it's really about when they're having that and in what, what form they're having that. So for instance, we've had participants come into our lab who've got 350 milligrams on average per day, but most of that comes in the form of a pre-workout supplement in the morning. They will typically have no caffeine the next day when they present, whereas you might have someone who, who reports 250 milligrams, but they have it in multiple coffees throughout the day. You ask them to abstain for 12 hours and they've got caffeine in their system the next morning. Mm. So it's not as simple as saying, well, what's your usual caffeine intake? Uh, It's to do with both the dose and the timing of that dose as to whether you're going to see their caffeine, um, plasma caffeine be be zero or not.
0: Mm. Okay, so now that you've touched on pre workouts can I ask in your opinion on pre-workout supplements and energy drinks and particularly the new type of energy drinks that are out now that claim to boost brain function and boost performance whilst being low in sugar or low in calories. So there seems to be a ton of them coming out onto the market which have a bunch of other things added to them and they, you know, they also claim boosting metabolism and burning fat. What are your opinion on these
1: yeah well we might start with the second part the energy drinks um, I always found it um, quite humorous as a dietitian that you could have you know an energy you know an energy free energy drink or a calorie free energy drink to me that was uh, you've just you just removed the energy component and the rest is a stimulant right um, drinks um, such as energy drinks um, they're regulated by the food code in Australia and they've got a maximum allowance of caffeine that's allowed um, as a concentration. It's 32 milligrams per 100 mils. Now, there are some uh, companies um, that produce products that sit higher than that, that can be sold internationally and potentially could be imported, but that that would actually be a violation of the food code. So that's why um, Red Bull and most of the leading brands have about um, 80 milligrams in a 250 mil can. But of course, if your can is 500 mils or 750 mils, Most of these um, energy drinks will have the maximum allowable caffeine at that 32 milligrams. So, it's it's not unusual to have 100, you know, 60 odd upwards, depending on um, the the volume of energy drink that's um, being consumed. The other bits and pieces that get thrown into these things um, are, are very easy to make claims of in terms of their influence on on. Um, cognitive function in particular. Uh, it's very difficult to tease that out as to whether there's um, genuine effects on, or not. We've done some work where we've where we've tried to isolate the effects of Red Bull um, with and without caffeine um, on ergogenic performance in endurance sport. Um, and in that study, we didn't see any greater benefit from the other bits and pieces that were in the energy drink. Um, and you often find that that's, the case when looking at energy drink research, but the problem is, mm-hmm. um, it's it's a it's a cocktail of different things. So actually, being able to isolate, you know, these effects is is a challenge.
0: Each component, yep.
1: Pre-workout supplements are a different beast. Yep. Um, they're not as um, tightly regulated. They're, they're sports um, supplements. Mm-hmm. They're extremely popular. Um, we did some work for um, some contract work for Fizan so. Food Standards Australia New Zealand a couple of years ago and we published um, this work so it, it is available um, on the internet um, mm-hmm. where we analyzed 15 of the most popular pre-workout supplements in Australia and compared it to what was written on the label these products are typically highly caffeinated some of which um, vary quite considerably from the label um, we also did an analysis where we took samples from the bottom, the middle, and the top of each product because when we opened them, we noticed that there was some natural stratification of some of the ingredients in these products. And we thought, well, if you don't shake it, I wonder if there's any variance in um, the caffeine content. And there is. Mm. Uh, so for a number of these products, um, as you move through the product, if, it's not, um, if it hasn't gone through any form of homogenation, any form of shaking, you're probably gonna get exposed to different amounts of caffeine as it settles in the product. Ah. Um, Because they've got all sorts of fillers and other things in them, so it's it's not just it's not just caffeine. And and so you know it's not uncommon for these sorts of products. And and we were looking at a an analysis where we just used whatever the serve size was of the the manufacturer. So we just looked at one serve, and it wasn't uncommon for these products to contain 250 to 300 milligrams of caffeine. So this is in the in the certainly in the range where you know one serve is. likely to be ergogenic, uh, more than one serve, and you're um, well over the the dose that um, we would typically prescribe in the laboratory. And of course, being young and being enthusiastic, why would you take one scoop when you can take two or three of these products because other people are doing it and you wanna um, perform better? So the risk of harm, or the risk of getting into adverse performance because of an over um, consumption of these products is high, and, and probably the only other note of caution that I would um, think is important for your podcast is you can buy anhydrous or pure caffeine on the internet yep, um, and that's very dangerous. Yeah. So, so pre-workout supplements as I said they've got fillers and all of these other things yep. in them but pure caffeine as in anhydrous caffeine if you were to take a teaspoon of that that can provide you with a fatal dose and and caffeine is a very fine white powder it looks just like flour And there are reports, unfortunately, in Australia of young people dying from caffeine overdoses from being exposed to anhydrous caffeine and thinking it either was mistaken as a protein supplement Mm. or it was considered like a pre-workout and taking a scoop Mm. of it and all of a sudden you're getting yourself a massive dose of caffeine administered very, very quickly.
0: So what do you think are the best forms for an athlete to take their caffeine in? If if the dose of caffeine in a coffee is quite variable, where, what do you think is the the best way to, to deliver that for an athlete in a safe manner that's obviously water, um, respectful of water regulations?
1: So we, we can look at this two ways. The, the ways that are um, very um, easily able to be quantified are usually when caffeine's been added into the product. So things like a no-dose tablet. You know, is pretty accurate. The amount of caffeine in in gels is usually um, reasonably accurate. Um, you can buy strips um, which can which are caffeinated. Any any time the caffeine's been added to a manufactured product mm-hmm. like an energy drink, um, then it's 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 probably reasonably um, reasonably accurate. As soon as it becomes in the form of a coffee, like an iced coffee beverage, or as I mentioned, coffee that you're consuming from a cafe you're going to see some of this variability introduced. If you've got a large amount of other ingredients coming in, like a pre-workout supplement, there'll be some variance from what's on the label there because it's not subject to the same level of restriction. So if it's purely a performance perspective, it's in your competition, we'd want you to have practice using that particular source um, and and use one of these gels or strips or or no-dose type tablets where you can titrate the dose that you know that you're getting relative to your body weight. You can practice it. You can make sure it doesn't upset your gut, that you feel comfortable consuming it and the like. Two, two other things. There is a limited amount of research that's been done on different caffeine sources. So the same dose of caffeine, but coming in through a gel or a tablet or, or, or a coffee with, with caffeine added back into it, like a decaf coffee, um, that research is sort of emerging at the moment. It probably doesn't matter too much what source but belief is a very powerful moderator of behavior and so you need to think about the athletes that you're working with and if they feel more comfortable more confident taking a strip as opposed to a tablet then 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 run with
0: run with that source okay what about dehydration a lot of people still think that caffeine has a dehydrating effect.
1: Yeah, I mean, the best um, studies that have been done in this area have debunked that now. So if you're a habitual caffeine consumer, uh, it it, it isn't going to affect any of the parameters that we measure hydration necessarily with. Caffeine can um, stimulate sort of bowel function and and gut upset, so that is one thing to be very um, conscious of in some individuals.
0: It's interesting, yeah, because actually some of... Some of our athletes with spinal cord injuries actually use caffeine to help with bowel function.
1: Yeah, yeah. So it, it, it's uh, it's very much um, a good servant but a bad master. Caffeine. <laughs> so you got to you got to use, use it for its its powers of good, not evil.
0: <laughs> and be aware of its powers of evil, because, and, and that's going to be an issue.
1: <laughs> Correct.
0: <laughs> cool. So. I guess considering the research that you've looked at from a para-athlete perspective, do you think that there might be anything that they need to be a little bit more aware of in terms of neuromuscular control, interactions with medications, anxiety, anything that you might just kind of put a temper or a a moderation in?
1: Well, I I think all of the above. (laughs) You've done a a really great summary of sort of highlighting some of the the challenges here. I mentioned earlier the um, little bit of work that's also been done on absorption of caffeine. And and all of these things, to me, point to a lower dose as a recommendation for for para-athletes, a a lower dose and to to trial these things um, during, you know, during preparation for for an event. Uh, Most of the complications, the challenges that, that, you know the emotional, um, emotional and cognitive, cognitive disruption that occurs tends to be at, at the higher level. So in this instance, um, working with para athletes, I would start low and titrate up slowly because it's likely to be that's where your therapeutic benefit is likely to be. And and it's as I said, it's about maximising the benefits. And then once you once you've optimised that, there's no point having any more. Perfect. Okay.
0: So is there any specific advice you give to my i guess you kind of summarized it there to to practitioners and and to athletes anything else that we we haven't really covered
1: we've we've recently done um, some work looking at um, caffeine's ability to moderate um, decrements in performance associated with poor sleep or disrupted sleep mm. so we we spoke earlier about caffeine as being a disruptor of sleep, yep. but many people use caffeine as the the wake-up agent in the morning. And so we've recently done a systematic review that's looked at any study that's looked at any form of physical or occupational performance following either sleep disruption or um, sleep deprivation. So sleep disruption might be where you go to bed late or wake up early or sleep deprivation where where we keep people awake for a long period of time. And in pretty much every domain that we looked at from you know, basic cognitive function right through to endurance performance, right through to some occupational tasks. Um, caffeine did a, a great job in covering the tracks laid down by a poor night's sleep. Mm-hmm. So I guess sometimes as scientists, we, we, we do a lot of work to discover what people have known for eons, but it's, but it's nice to have that information quantified. So again, this is a case of using caffeine in a context where it's going to serve you well. So if you've had a night of disrupted sleep, maybe you've had to travel, perhaps you've got to get up early to you know, engage in an event uh, and that sleep disruption was inevitable, then, then strategic use of caffeine um, can assist in that, in that context.
0: Yep, great, fantastic. Thanks, Ben. Um, I have one more final question. What's your favourite food?
1: My favourite food? Well, um, it's not coffee, although I do love coffee. I only have one <laughs> coffee like a day. You like the
0: smell of it. <laughs> yes.
1: I only have one coffee a day, so my addiction has, has been capped at one coffee a day. Um, I'm a very simple person. My, my favourite food is ice cream. I'm, I'm, uh, and, uh, I've got a weakness. It's a problem. Um, I've had it now for several decades. It's
0: any particular brand or flavour?
1: Uh, no, it's a broad church, Liz. Um, there's, there's, there's many disciples. <laughs> so, no, I, I cheap cheap and nasty ice cream I don't like, but um, I'll, I, my, I, I'm a product of my mother. She loved rum and raisin ice cream, and I love rum and raisin ice cream, so I probably have to say that's my overall favourite in terms of flavours, but I'll, I'll give anything a go.
0: Well, thanks, Ben, for your time. I really appreciate it.
1: Absolute pleasure, Liz.
0: Yeah, hopefully we get to talk to you again soon about some of your other research.
1: Yeah, that'd be fantastic. Thanks for having me on.
0: Yeah, no problem. Well, we certainly covered a lot of ground in this podcast. My takings from it are that for para-athletes, we're probably better off if we are going to try caffeine, which in my mind is something that you do With a more experienced athlete who's really got their competition strategies in place and their nutrition strategies well rehearsed, that you start with a small dose, you try it in training um, and in maybe a competition simulation. You you check out both the potential positive aspects as well as the potential side effects, and you find a form that has a controlled dose that you can manage that dosing. Four. having it about an hour to an hour and a half before an event uh, seems to be a good timing and we need to look at whether there's a sleep impact later on in the evening. You may also be interested in a great podcast with Alistair Donoghue, paracyclist, just in the lead up to his competition in Tokyo that was done by the Long Munch podcast uh, on his caffeine use. So thank you very much for listening to this podcast. I hope you're enjoying them. So please share with your social media platform. We'd love to hear your feedback or any topics of interest to you. In our next podcast, we'll be talking about CBD.